0: We're going to go through two chapters tonight. It doesn't say that on the outline, but we're going to read chapter 27. There's not a whole lot in there, but we'll read through that, and then main study will be in chapter 28. So we'll be looking at King Jotham and Ahaz tonight. But let's open a word of prayer, and hopefully you all had a good 4th of July and uh, recovered. (laughs) But Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time here tonight and pray that you would just uh, lead us and guide us through this time in your word, and, and uh, thank you for each one that uh, made it a point to come out this evening, and uh, we pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts and our minds, help us to set aside the busyness of our day, and, and just to help us focus on your word tonight. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So you can follow along in your Bibles. going to read uh, these two chapters, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 27 <clears throat> through chapter 28. And this is uh, King Jotham. Chapter 27, and there's not a whole lot here about him. He was a pretty good guy, uh, but unfortunately the people still did what they did under uh, his father's reign as well. But it says here in verse 1, Jotham was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father... Uh, Uzziah had done except he did not enter the temple of the Lord (laughs) So he learned a lesson there, but but the people still followed corrupt practices He built the upper gates of the house of the Lord and did much building on the wall of Ophel Moreover, he built cities in the hill country of Judah uh, And forts and towers on the the wooded hills he fought with the king of the Ammonites He gave them uh, and gave him that year over uh, about a 100 talents of silver and 10,000 cores of wheat and 10,000 of barley. And the Ammonites paid him the same amount in the second and third years. So Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. Now, the rest of the acts of Jotham and all of his wars and his ways, behold, they're written in the book of Kings of Israel and Judah. He was twenty-five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and he slept, and his, and Jotham slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Aphaz his son reigned in his place. So he, he did learn some lessons from his dad, uh, the guy we looked at last week, Uzziah, um, but still the people were still wayward. And now we start chapter eight, or twenty-eight, verse one. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He was in the Davidic line, is what that means. Um, Verse 2, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And remember, they served all kinds of images and bales and everything. Uh, He even made metal images for the bales, And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnon and burned his sons as an offering. So he sacrificed his own kids to the um, worship of Baal. According to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Verse 5, Therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. And he was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. For Pikah, the son of uh, Ramalia, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day. All of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the, the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, the mighty man of Ephraim, killed Messiah, the, the king's son, and Azarqam, uh the, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the, uh, the next in the authority to the king. So he's just wiping out everybody. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their uh, relatives, women, sons, daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the, brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded, And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. In other words, you've overstepped your boundaries here. Verse 10, And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me and send back captives from your relatives whom you have taken. For the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Verse 12. Certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah, and the son of Johanan, and Berachiah the son of Amath, uh, and, and Jehizekiah, <laughs> the son of Shalom, and Manasseh, the son of Hadlai stood up against those who were coming from war and said to them, you shall not bring the captives in here for you purpose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt for our guilt is already great and there is fierce wrath against Israel. Verse 14. So the armed men left the captives and spoil before the princes and all the assembly and all the men who have been mentioned by name rose and took captives And with the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them food and drink and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their king folk in Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. Verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help for the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and taken away captives. And the Philistines made raids on the cities in the Jephthah and uh, Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, uh, Jeradoth, uh, Jaderoth, Soko with its villages, Timna with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages. And they settled there. Verse 19, For the Lord humbled Judah because of, king, of uh, king Ahaz of Israel, for he made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Siglath-Pileser, a king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king, and out of, and, and of the princes, and gave tribute to the king of Assyria. But it did not help. It did not help him. Verse 22, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. Verse 23, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him, and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut them in pieces, the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to the anger of the the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all of his ways from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of kings of Judah and Israel, and Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So verse 27 basically tells about Jotham and, and the good things that he did. Uh, the, the couple verses there, he did what was right, verse 2, in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, um, and then uh, down a little uh, further, it says again, uh, he, he did what was right. And uh, so there wasn't a whole lot in that chapter. But when we come to chapter 28, you think that they would learn, but they don't. And so uh, once again, we're back to the same old cycle that we've been through time and time again with these kings. They just don't learn their lesson. Um, I read an illustration this past. It's a true story, but from history, uh, about the 14th century, there was a, a duke um, in Belgium what's now Belgium, uh, named uh, Reynold III. the III. And he had a violent argument with his brother. And it was his younger brother, Edward. And he had led this successful revolt against his brother. And so Edward captured Rainald, but he didn't kill him. Instead, he built a room in their castle, and he put Reynold in the room. And he promised that he could regain his title and all the property that he had confiscated as soon as he was able to leave this room that he had built. Um, And it wouldn't have been very difficult for the average person to get out of this room. There was a door uh, with no lock. There was windows with no bars. Um, It was just, you know, a normal kind of room. The problem was, Reynolds' size, he was uh, grossly... History tells us, overweight. He was a huge man. And so when his brother built this room, he made the door <laughs> too small for Reynold to leave. And the windows too small for him to leave. And to gain his freedom, he had to lose weight. This was the deal. And Edward knew his his older brother, and so each day he just knew that he couldn't resist. So he sent him all kinds of delicious food. Every day. And so, you know, his brother, unfortunately, instead of dieting his way out of prison by resisting the the tempting foods, he grew even fatter. He grew even bigger. And when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty against his brother, he he simply replied, he says, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he wills. (laughs) But of course, his brother was a prisoner. He was a prisoner of his his own appetite, right? Right. And he stayed, history tells us, in that room for 10 years. 10 years. And he wasn't released until his brother Edward was killed in a battle. And by then his health was so ruined that even after they released him, they had to tear down the wall to get him out because he couldn't fit through the door. But he only lasted a year. And he died uh, because his health was so bad. And and that illustration is, is to show us that every heart, every human heart kind of has a, uh, a perverse and powerful attraction to that which will destroy us, potentially. Um, it's, it's that appeal for sin that's within every one of us. And it's kind of, you know, when you sit out on your deck in the, the summertime, if you have one of those bug zappers, my, my daughter used to have one of those in the house because the flies were so bad in, in Hawaii at certain times of the 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 season they just everybody had them it was just kind of crazy and she had this little zapper thing and i was just amazed these these bugs just kept on going into the zapper you know you think they'd learn i mean you know there's you know in this tray underneath they're all dead you know you think you'd figure it out but just like those those bugs go to the light and they burn up you know it's kind of like fallen sinners are drawn toward a sinfulness and an evil that has a potential to enslave us and really ultimately ruin us, but just like the people of Israel, we keep on going back. We keep on being attracted to it, and I wish I could stand here before you and say, oh, after 40 years knowing the Lord or 50 years knowing the Lord, whatever, that, boy, it's just, you don't have that anymore, and every one of you know it never goes away. Every one of us has potential and is attracted to that which potentially could destroy us, and so it is a, a, a winnable war, though, because if you're in Christ, if you've trusted Christ, he has uh, victory over sin and death. He has victory over all that. And so if we're in Christ and, and we do what he tells us to do, we won't be in the war and won't be uh, losing the war, at least. We'll still be, have a battle going on, but we're on the winning side of the war. We won't hopefully um, give into it all the time. We're not immune to it by any means. And but it, it basically, our lives consist of a series of choices, don't they? Even after, I would say even more so after we come to Christ, right? Because when, before we come to Christ, we don't really have any choice to make. We're just naturally going to sin. You know, that's all we know. And then we're saved, and all of a sudden we realize, wow, some of the things I was doing before, maybe I shouldn't be doing those things. And so we, we try to turn away from them and, and try to surround ourselves with a different group of people that maybe don't partake in those things. But the temptation is still there. And so tonight I want us to look at either we forsake God to go after sin, or we forsake sin to go after God. There's no gray area there. Either you're going to turn your back on God and run after sin, even as a believer, or you're going to forsake your sin, say no to it, and go after God. And unfortunately, King Ahaz forsook the Lord for sin. He, he, he did so in spite of many advantages. I mean, think about it. King Ahaz, his grandfather was, was uh, King Uzziah, who, although he later became proud and, and did some wrong things, he was struck with leprosy, as we found out last week. Uh, he was yet a mighty king who sought the Lord most of his life. Ahaz's father was King Jotham, who we just read in chapter 27. He was a godly man who strengthened the kingdom, he did everything right. Um, and so, furthermore than that, Ahaz, as it indicated there, was a descendant of the king of King David himself. And so he came under all these blessings. He had all these privileges in life. The blessings of the covenant of God that he, he enacted between David uh, and himself and all that. And and if that weren't enough, Ahaz lived during the ministry of prophet. Isaiah, and uh, and he encouraged Ahaz to trust in the Lord, but Ahaz didn't listen. He didn't listen to, to God's prophet. He didn't listen to God's word. He forsook the Lord completely, and so let's look at his life and see what it means to forsake God and go after sin, and it, uh, it also kind of reveals from an unexpected source, you may think, Uh, what it means to forsake sin and go after God, and we'll look at that secondly. But the first one there, forsaking God to go after sin. What do we mean? In verses 2 and 4 there, we see forsaking God to go after sin begins by adding worldly ideas to God's word. See, Ahaz didn't begin his reign by closing the temple on his first day uh, and replacing the worship of God with the worship of idols. He didn't do that the first day. Um, eventually it came to that. It doesn't happen until all the way down in verse 24. All right? So it wasn't he became king and said, I don't believe in this stuff. No, he didn't start there. He started by adding idol worship to the worship of the Lord. So he allowed them to continue to worship the Lord, but he said, hey, let's do what these other countries do too because you know, we want to cover all the bases. Kind of sounds like the modern-day church. Let's just accept everything and don't have any theological debates. That way, at least we won't offend anybody, and and everybody will like us. And that's what his motivation was. Um, and so he started adding idol worship, and partaking in idol worship, as well as wor- trying to worship the Lord. And there's a parallel account. We don't have time to look at it, but over in Second Kings 16, it tells how Ahaz went up to meet Damascus, uh, went up to Damascus to meet uh, uh, Tiglath-Pileser. And he had defeated the Assyrians in, in the northern kingdom of Israel on Ahaz's behalf. He helped them out. And there he saw this magnificent altar, which he liked so much, that he sent back the plans for it to his, his, his priest, so that it was waiting for him when he returned from Damascus. So he went to a place that was foreign to the Lord's people and said, Oh, I like this this." this idol-worshiping altar. I want the plans to that, and we're going to establish that back home. And Ahaz offered on this pagan altar the sacrifices prescribed in the Law of Moses. So you can see where he, he kind of mixed the two. You know, it'd be kind of like in the, in the modern-day church if, if somehow we were to, you know, before communion, have a chant to Satan or something. I mean, that's how radical this was. I mean, you would think, well, we would do that? Well, he, that's what he was doing. He was mixing these two. And um, as for the bronze altar described by Moses, the one that was supposed to be used for the sacrifice, it says that he moved it aside and kept it to inquire by, but he offered all of his sacrifices on the pagan altar of his preference. So he left the, the original altar there, but he said, let's just move this out of the way. We're going to put this new one here. I like this one better, but it was a pagan altar. Uh, He was blending these pagan ideas with what was prescribed in the Bible. And that's how forsaking the Lord often begins, doesn't it? It it begins in our lives by replacing just a few things uh, in the Bible that you don't like. (laughs) Maybe you read a couple passages and go, "Eh, you know, I believe the Bible. But uh, that's hard to digest. That's hard to understand there. Uh, And, you know, I think I'd, I'd rather believe this instead of what the Bible says. And you replace them with maybe some more popular ideas or more popular phrases or whatever it is. And you know what there are a lot of truths, hard truths in the scriptures that confront our culture and confront our own our own sinfulness really. Our own selfish preferences, you might say. Uh, you know, Titus 25, for example. We know that. It says wives are to be subject to their husbands and they're to be workers at home. Well, in this modern-day culture, that doesn't go too far. You know, I mean, you, you believe that, you're old-fashioned. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not right. It doesn't mean it's not a biblical principle. But the whole idea of a woman being subject to anybody, you would have that would be a hard sell today. And so, you know, we, we kind of prefer more the egalitarian model, everybody's equal, and they are. It doesn't mean that women are less equal, but as far as the authority structure in the home... The Bible very clearly says that the man is the leader. And that's not putting down women, but that's, that's what the scripture says. Um, the Bible says that our, our marriage commitment is to be for what? For life. But you know what? Today, ah, you know what? We put in a good five years. This is not going to work out. Let's just go find somebody else. You know, and, and, and it just dissolves and nobody thinks anything of it. And, uh, you know, rather than sticking with the relationship and learning to deny yourself and, and to love the other person as Jesus loved that person. And, you know, marriage isn't for your happiness, right? Marriage is, is for our holiness. I think that's really why God allowed marriage between a man and a woman to have children, obviously, but also to, to kind of make us stronger in Christ, to make us stronger believers. Because it's not easy. Marriage is never easy. Um, and so most po- people find that too hard. You expect me to be married to the same person for their, all my life. I'm just going to bail out of this. I'm going find somebody else. And it's a mutual, you know, mutual thing. And, you know, you have the whole no-fault divorce thing going on, every, everything. And they make it very easy nowadays. Uh, but we begin forsaking the Lord when we begin to replace those kind of things with clear directives that God has given us, all right, we, we replace him for the best worldly wisdom or maybe our, our culture or custom or whatever. And that's where it starts. Secondly, forsaking God uh, to go after sin means doing what I think will be good for me, even if it's harmful to others. Um, look at verse 3. It says, And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnon and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before uh, the people. And so, you know, he, he, he points out there that he burned some of his sons, sacrificed them by fire, offering them to the god Molech, probably. And uh, he just slaughtered the child, thinking that somehow that was going to help him you know, probably the son was thinking, hey, wait a minute, Pop, Uh, this this isn't going to work out too well for me. He didn't care. He didn't care about that. Sometimes, rather than just killing the son and then burning him, they would actually put the living infant or the living child through the flames, like intense heat. And if they came out the other end and they were still alive, then that was okay, because it was at least an attempt to offer him. But, I mean, you'd be completely burnt. So, I mean, you can just imagine... (laughs) you know, uh, this kind of thing going on. And it's really because the parent was seeking to, to, to satisfy the gods so that it would be well with him. They believed in this, these idols, and they said, well, if we offer to the idols our own children, then God will bless us with our own riches and our own wealth and all these things. It wasn't going to do well for the children, but they didn't care. The main thing is my well-being. And even if it means a child's pain or death, it was irrelevant. But it was detestable in God's sight. Jeremiah 32, verse 35 points that out. It's very clear. You shouldn't do this if you're one of God's children. Um, It's interesting today with this whole Supreme Court thing on abortion and everything. I mean, there's a lot of people cheering that. I mean, it hasn't really changed anything. It just kicks it back to the states, right? So it's not that babies aren't going to be aborted. And what's interesting is um, the studies show that between 95 and 98% of all babies that are aborted, are aborted uh, basically f- for strictly convenience. That's the only reason, it's strictly convenience. In other words, ah, we don't want the kid right now, we're too young, we got things to do. <laughs> you know, we'll just have an abortion. Um, it would inconvenience the mother, it would inconvenience the father. Um, they don't want to take responsibility for what God has created there and you know you just have to to understand that and yeah there are difficult situations that arise but you know what that still is is a person that God created I don't care what the what the circumstances of the pregnancy are I mean I'm kind of hard nose on that stuff but it's it's amazing but we have people even within the church that don't even give a thought of voting for somebody who supports abortion they don't even care they would support somebody who supports abortion, not because they support abortion, but maybe they dislike the other candidate, or maybe, maybe they're going to do something else that's good the, to do to them. But, you know, when you're think, talking about killing little babies uh, in the womb, the most innocent place, I mean, that's just horrible. So uh, you, you have to make sure you do your homework when you vote, I guess. And a lot of people accuse Christians of being a, a one-issue voter. Well, that's a pretty big issue. So if you want to accuse me of being a one-issue voter because I I won't never vote for someone who supports abortion, um, period, Uh, you know, so be it. Well, the third thing here, forsaking God to go after sin means turning to the world for help. Turning to the world for help. This happened in verse 16. Look at verse 16. He says, At that time King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. Okay, this was not some place for him to go for help. He all did the same thing down in verse 22 and 23. And what happens is when people turn away from God, he graciously, and it's part of his grace actually, he sends trials into their lives. All right? It doesn't get easier, it gets harder. And, and the goal is hopefully God is wanting that sinner to turn to God for help. A lot of times people are, struggle in life. Because they're doing things that are not pleasing to God. And you try to explain to them, look, if you would just apply this principle in your marriage with your children or whatever, um, y- you might have a little better go at it here. Because obviously God's trying to get your attention. And every trial, I believe, is designed by God to teach us the, the uh, futility of us trusting in ourselves. When God sends us something that causes us to shake in our boots and we don't know what to do, He's hoping we'll cry out to him rather than trying to figure out on our own, rather than trying to trust in worldly wisdom. uh, He's trying to drive us to trust in him and him alone. And yet today, even millions of Christians are turning to all kinds of psychology and all kinds of wacky stuff to help them with their issues. Um, And you just have to be be careful with that. Um, A lot of times... Um, you know, you, you have to stop and you have to think, well, h- how does this actually, you know, play out? Because, you know, some of these things may work. But, I mean, if I told you that, hey, you know, I was sick the other day, and so I, I somebody gave me this guy's number, and he was kind of a witch doctor, and he came over to the house, and... He did this weird sacrifice in the living room and then he got this chicken and uh, cut the blood out and put it on, put this weird mark on my forehead. And, it was, and boy, it was amazing. I just got better. Do you want his number? You would probably say, are you crazy? No, I'm a Christian. I don't need. I would never do something like that. And yet, it's almost like that when it comes to psychology and all these other things. They're willing to trust all this stuff, even though God says, hey, you know what? God's word in Christ is completely sufficient to meet our needs. Now, there are issues sometimes with people that are medical issues. I'm not talking about that. Okay. Sometimes people need medication. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. That's, that's, that's something that God has given our, our doctors and stuff to, to be able to do that. You know, when I went and got my leg operated on a couple weeks ago, I didn't sit there and go, I'm a Christian. I don't need any anesthesia. I'm just trusting the Lord. No, I'm like, give me whatever you got doc, because I don't want to feel anything. Right. I mean, uh, that, that's very important. And so you know, I, I want to make that qualification there. But we have to be careful when we're putting all of our trust in the worldly wisdom that we see around us today because we're specifically warned in Scripture against accepting counsel from ungodly or, or wisdom of the world. Psalm 1 1, uh, Colossians 2, 3, 2 8 tells us that. We're, we're repeatedly told to take our problems to God and to trust in Him and Him alone not in our own understanding, not in our own strength. And so, you know, when you've got problems in your life, when you've got trials, you you have really only two options. Either you seek help from the Lord and his word, or you seek help from the world. That's it. And uh, Ahaz, unfortunately, sought help for his problems from the world, uh, from people that God said, hey, don't have anything to do with these people. And he ran right to the doorsteps and said, hey, uh, can you help me out? Um, And so I want you to know, before you turn to the world for help, there's three things I want you to understand. First of all, the world always exacts a high price for its help. Look at what it says in verse 21. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, or wait, no, sorry, 21 of 28. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord, so he actually went into the the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes, and he gave, carved out whatever he could, gold, whatever, and he gave it as a tribute to the king of Assyria, who was supposed to be his enemy. Um, And uh, Tilgath-Pileser would take care of Ahaz's enemy, enemy for this price. And so he had to actually go and strip the temple, strip his palace, and take money from his own princes. It was expensive. And it wasn't covered by any kind of insurance either. So his wives, his princes, all these people are probably complaining, thinking, hey, wait a minute. You know, we had all this gold and we have all this stuff. These fixtures are all gone now. What are you doing? But you know what? A man has to do what a man has to do when he needs help in this world. And so that's exactly what he did. And whenever you turn to the world for help, the world makes sure it gets its payment. You may not know it at the time, but it will get its payment. And it will always be more expensive than what the Lord would charge because he won't charge you anything. Um. Second thing here, I mean, under that point, I mean, Ahaz could have called Isaiah the prophet, right, that was giving him advice. He could have called him and said, hey, I got this problem. What do I do? But he didn't. He just went right to the world and uh, decided to harm other people for his own good. The second thing there, the world never delivers what it promises. Um, This guy promised his help, but after he polished off Ahaz's enemies, he moved on to afflict Ahaz. So he said, hey, now this guy's weak. You know, so I, I can take care of him now. And in the end, <coughs> the, the help that Ahaz sought proved ultimately to be his downfall in, our, in, the, in what we read. In spite of all the money he spent, and he didn't get the help he needed. And, and that's what the world's help is like. It's, it's empty. I mean, it may look real good, but in the end, it's going to exact its price on you. At first, it seems to offer what you want, but in the end, it never really delivers what it promises. Because it doesn't direct you to the Lord. It, it has a tendency to make you think you're self-sufficient. And that's not what the Lord wants. Uh, it seems as if he will bring her the, the happiness she, she, she thinks when, when this, you know, uh, girls enter into a relationship with, with an unbelieving uh, person or a guy enters into a relationship with an unbelieving gal. You know, and you think, well, you know, boy, I'm just getting weird. I'm single. I want to be married. This person's a nice person. Do they know the Lord? First principle you got to figure out. If they don't know the Lord, don't go any further. There's so many people that do, and they, they, in the long run, it it, it exacts its payment. (laughs) It it doesn't work out. And so you have to be patient with that. Um, Thirdly, the world comes in as a friend but takes over as a master. And this is what happened with uh, this tiglath uh, was Initially, he was King Ahaz's friend. Sure, you know, I'll knock off uh, Syria. I'll subdue Israel for you. But then what did he do? He said, now I'm going to take you. I'm going to exact tribute from Ahaz. And in the end, Ahaz was a, a weak vessel for him. Um, and so that's how the world works. You invite it to come as your friend, but eventually it becomes a domineering house guest. And uh, it shoves your things in the corner, and it takes over. And you don't have any choices anymore. Um, and, and it all starts with one little step. You know, it's, it's all, uh <coughs> I think it was Keith Green who sang a song, used to sing a song at concerts. that said, be careful, little eyes what you see. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just was depicting the idea that, you know what, your eye is, is a gate to good things as well as bad things. And most of the men here, probably the women as well, will tell you. Just take one glance, one look at something that's not honoring to the Lord. Um, and you know what? It, it can become your enslavement very quickly. So we have to be careful of that. Um, you know, just having that one little afternoon drink the housewife has just to calm her nerves a little bit. Pretty soon she's an enslaved alcohol. You know, and that doesn't happen with everybody, but I'm just saying the potential's there. And so you have to be, be careful about that. <coughs> uh, it never delivers what it promises. It comes in as a friend and it takes over as a master. And uh, forsaking God for sin begins by adding worldly ideas to God's word. It means doing what I think will be good for me, even if it's harmful to others. It means turning to the world for help, which is no help at all. And then the fourth thing here, forsaking God to go after sin means incurring his discipline. Um, If a person has an outward profession of faith, if you're here tonight and you're saying, yeah, I'm a believer, I trusted Christ. Um, But here, like Ahaz, maybe you're not truly converted. You're not truly saved. You're you're saying, yeah, I'm a Christian because my family's a Christian. Maybe you're not saved. Uh, What does God do? He sends trials into your life to hopefully bring you to repentance, uh, brings you to faith in Christ. Uh, if the person truly knows Christ, then what do we call that? The, God's discipline, right? Just like a, a father would discipline his child. Uh, Hebrews twelve four to 11. But in either case, whether you're professing Christ or you really know Christ, <clears throat> we have to understand that trials do not come as bad luck or by chance Okay, trials come into our life by God's design, by his hand. Um, a sovereign, loving God uses everything with, within his power, from minor, minor irritations to major catastrophes, you could say, to pry us loose from our self and our self-love and sin, and to drive us to trust in him more and more. And, and that's what's so important to understand. It's, it's, uh, um, if, if you're not a believer, then... Your sin may incur God's judgment somehow. If you're out and you're sexually promiscuous, well, then you, guess what? You're going to deal with some form of STD or whatever, okay? That's going to come into your life, um, and it's not going to be fun, all right? And so we have, to be, we have to acknowledge that, and God allows that for a purpose. It's to draw us back. It's to turn our heart to the Lord, um, and it makes us realize, really, it, as Romans 6.23 says, what? The wages of sin is what? Death, right? But if you'll, if you'll turn and you'll repent and you'll turn to God, the Bible says you'll receive a gift of God, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, and even if we, we have not deliberately sinned, we need to recognize every trial, every tribulation is God's gracious means of shaping us into the image of His Son. Uh, that's what the Apostle Paul went through. He went through trial after trial after trial. Some of the, you know, thorn in the flesh, he asked God to take it away three times, and God said, nope, nope, you're going to to live with this because this keeps you humble. This keeps you where you need to be in your relationship with me. So when you think of health problems, you think of family problems, you think of financial troubles, car troubles, every other kind of problem that you may have, it, it's probably a gracious opportunity from the Lord to help you grow in your relationship to Christ or to help you come to Christ in the first place. Um, even Jesus, who was without sin, says he learned obedience through the things he suffered in Hebrews 5.8. So even Christ, the trials and everything that he was going through in life, even though he was perfect, it says that he learned obedience through that. And that's what God graciously wants to teach us. So if you've forsaken God for sin, then really the, the view of your trials as his gracious means of bringing you into the place where you need to be, uh, that's, that's where you should be. Uh, with that, but Ahaz never did that, unfortunately. Um, now, some others did, and that takes us to the the, the the last points here, forsaking sin to go after God, and this is kind of an unusual place where it comes from because uh, these warriors from the northern kingdom who defeated Judah in battle, what did they do? It says that they brought back 200,000 women and children as slaves in verse 8 there. Uh, the northern kingdom remember they haven't had one godly king since the division of the land almost 200 years before so they're not the epitome of of you know spirituality here they're worshiping the, the idols and they're doing all kind of bad things and yet god did not leave himself without a witness in the north and that's good news i mean even in the bay area you know as pagan as this area is and kind of anti-God, anti-Christ, all that, and, and we see it in the culture all around us, even though it's a beautiful place to live. Um, you know, God leaves a witness here. He leaves someone here, and he did. And in this case, it was the prophet Oded. And he, what did he do? When these men were coming back from war, he confr- from war, he confronted them. He confronted them. And this was the ungodly northern kingdom, the, the capital was Samaria, and they forsook their sin And they obeyed God, even though the southern kingdom did just the opposite. They didn't obey God. But it kind of comes from this unlikely place. And uh, I think this story was no doubt behind Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan, because Odin's job was a bit kind of like if you're an MP in the military and you had to go to a bar and you had to confront 50 drunk soldiers. You know, I mean, there's only one of you or two of you. Uh, that would be a tough place to be in, all right, because you're not going to probably win that battle with 50 people. And these guys were coming back from war, so they had the smell of victory. They were excited. They were jacked up. They were like, yeah, we got our pillage, and we're taking all these people as slaves, but what does this man of God do? He goes out, and he confronts them. He confronts them, and he tells them to send their captives home. He goes, don't do this. And his words and the response reveal three aspects of true repentance. And the first one here, repentance means listening to the word of God. And the only way we know what is right from wrong is what? What the scriptures tell us. It's not what you think. Well, I don't think that's right. I don't care what you think. What does the Bible say about that? Um, that's the problem with our culture. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. You know, people can go in and smash in windows and steal stuff out of stores and grocery stores or whatever. Well, and you hear people on TV all the time. Well, that's their, you know, they don't have anything. (laughs) That doesn't give them the right to go steal other people's stuff. In their mind, it does. It's just kind of crazy. They make excuses for them. And so uh, God's word reveals his righteousness through moral standards that he lays down for us. And these men, who were not moral in any way, they heard God's truth through God's messenger, Oded. And Ahaz had heard God's word through Isaiah over and over and over again. Two different men, two different outcomes. Um, and so do we. We have the Bible in, in written form, right? That's why it's important to study it. That's why it's important to learn it and learn it and understand what it is. The Bible, only the Bible, should be our standard for right and wrong. Um, Repentance involves listening to God's word. That's, That's where that conviction comes from. Secondly, repentance means acknowledging our own sin. It means looking at our own sin and acknowledging it, saying, yeah, you know what, I blew it here, I did this. Not just comparing yourself with others. That was the thing that I couldn't get over when before I was a Christian and this pastor was telling me the gospel over and over again. And I kept on saying, but I'm not like my brothers. I'm not like my brothers. It didn't matter, right? I still had sin. I mean, it may not have been as great as my brothers, but I still had sin. You know, it's a very selfish, righteous, self-righteous attitude I had. And finally, God convicted me of that. And I realized, wow, if, if the Bible says for all have sinned, that includes me. So that must mean I, I need to come to Christ. And, and that's exactly how it worked. Um, do you not have transgressions of your own against your, the Lord your God? That's the question he asked in verse 10 there. He says, wait a minute, what are you doing? You're, you're kind of compounding your sins here. Um, these warriors from the north had just been used by God to exact, exact his judgment on their sinful brothers in the south. God said, you know, I'm going to have these guys come down and, and pillage, take, take you captive. Um, and they probably were, were pretty, feeling pretty good about themselves compared with their brothers at this point because God used them to exact this, this judgment on them. And so they were taking all these people captives. But the prophet, the man of God, goes out and he, he confronts them with their own sin. And that's why repentance always means acknowledge your own sin, not comparing yourself to others. Um, who may be even more sinful? Um, I said this before, but someone asked, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, do you think Benny Hinn, that word of faith, health, wealth teacher on, on TV and whatnot, do you think he actually repented? Because they said he repented about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And Justin Peter says, if he would have repented, he would have went on his broadcast and said, I'm turning off all my my channels. I'm, I'm acknowledging that I've ripped you off for years and I, I could never repay you all, but I'm, I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing. They would never do that. That's not true repentance. And in Acts 26, 20 says, God requires us to perform deeds appropriate to repentance. So if someone comes to you and they say, well, you know what? I'm a drug addict and I'm an alcoholic and I'm, um, I'm immoral, and, uh, you know, uh, but now I'm a Christian. But just look at their life. Are they repent? Did they repent? Did they turn away from what they've done before? Because a lot of people, we make it so dumbed down today, we, all you got to do is put your faith in, just pray this prayer. I heard today on, on, on the, the radio, an evangelist was on there, and he was leading people in a prayer, and then he said, well, welcome to God's family. You know, we want to send you some materials. Uh, And I get it. I mean, you don't want to be discouraging, right, to people. But at the same time, where are the deeds bringing forth repentance? You know, and I've often told young people this. If there's no change, there's no Jesus. If there's no Jesus, there's no change. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. When you get saved, you will be a new person in Christ. You will know without a doubt. Um, And you know, there's a lot of people who supposedly receive Christ, but there's no repentance. They don't turn from their sin and begin to obey the Lord. They just continue in their sin. And that's what repentance means. It means that we begin to obey God. We, we don't <coughs> listen to our flesh and, and go after all that anymore. We, we begin to obey what God tells us to obey. And when we do sin, because we're not perfect, what do we do? We come back to him and we say, man, thank you for forgiving my sin, Right. First John one nine, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them. so, you know, it's just it's just important. Uh, Christians are not sinless. But we should sin less <laughs> as we grow in the Lord. And if if you if you're here tonight and you said, well, I've been a Christian since I was five, but nothing's changed since you were five, other than you matured as an adult. Uh, I would say you better want to go back and and rethink your profession of Christ. Uh, It's it's very important. I'll close with this illustration. It's a Native American story that legend they tell. And, you know, it's kind of fanciful because it's not real, but it's just a story they use in illustration. And it says, many years ago, an Indian brave, they would go out into the solitude to kind of prepare for manhood. And um, one saw this giant mountain peak up in the up in the hillside there, and he thought, you know, I'm gonna go and test myself against the mountain. And so he put on his buffalo hide shirt and threw a blanket over his shoulder and he set out on his journey to conquer this challenging summit. And when he reached the top, he felt like he was standing on the rim of the world. He could see everything around him. And uh, his heart was welling with pride and thought, wow, this is just such a wonderful experience. Now I'm a man, and he heard this rustle around at his feet. And uh, he looked down and he saw a snake kind of slithering around his feet. And, uh, and before he could move, the legend says the snake spoke to him. And the snake said, I'm about to die. It's too cold for me up here, and there's no food. Can you please put me into your shirt and take me down into the valley? And the Indian boy, he said, well, no. He goes, I, I know you're kind. You're a rattlesnake. If I, if I pick you up, you'll bite me and kill me. And the snake said, no, no, not so. I'll treat you differently. If you do this for me, I will not harm you. And the youth resisted as long as he could. But the snake was very persuasive. And at last the youth tucked the snake in under his shirt and he carried it down into the valley. And then he laid it down. He felt kind of good about himself. He spared the snake, thought this was good. And all of a sudden the snake cold up, rattled, and struck, and he bit him in the leg. And the startled youth cried out, but you promised! You promised! And the snake replied, you knew what I was when you picked me up. And sometimes in life, we have to recognize when we're about to embrace a sin, into our life, when we're about to look at something and go, wow, that's so attractive, it's so harmless, it's not going to hurt anybody. Remember the words of the snake. You knew what I was when you picked me up. And if if you forsake God to go after sin, as Ahaz did, you're only going to get hung. It's going to affect you adversely. It's not going to be a blessing. But if you forsake sin, and you go after God, even though that's a more difficult choice, ultimately you will be blessed. And uh, so I leave you with the question, are you forsaking God to go after sin? Or are you forsaking sin to go after God? I pray it's it's the latter. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Father, thank you for this example. Both of them, uh, Jotham, who did write what was before the Lord and And how you uh, blessed him, but also, Lord, um, King Ahaz and the example that he provides for us of someone who goes after sin and forsakes you. I pray that that wouldn't be in anybody's heart here tonight. Lord, that we would pursue you more and more each and every day. That we would desire to know your word more. uh, That we would have an increased um, desire to study and to to witness and to share uh, you with others around us, Father. And, Father, that we would be blessed as a result of that. Help us to uh, be careful when it comes to the world, when it comes to its wisdom, when it comes to the attractiveness of sin. And, Lord, I pray that uh, we would just resolve in our hearts, even here tonight, uh, that that we would be willing to say no to sin and yes to God, that we would forsake our sin and run to God and ask him for help whenever uh, this arises in our lives. And, Lord, we just pray you take us safely home tonight. Thank you for each one that's come out and pray you bless our conversation now around our tables. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.